All right, if you would, please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 2. I was listening to some sermons this morning. I normally come early and I, I help uh, make sure that the words are right in the music with Jimmy and stuff like that. Today, I just stayed away until it was time to come sit up here. And uh, so I got to listen to some sermons on Facebook. And I listened to the one, one of the very cool churches. And uh, it had great music. And then it had a good, certainly well-spoken uh, speech. Now, they didn't get out the Bible, really, and, and they did reference it a few times, and they did even read a couple of scriptures. But then I watched uh, David Platt's church, and they had great music, and then he got up, and he started working in the Bible, and he even has this cool app where he's drawing on the Bible, and you see it on the big screen, okay? So there are those churches who are going to focus in on the Bible and the message of the Bible, and then there are churches who are not so much going to do that. We, by God's grace, are going to be one that delves into the Word all the time. So we're going to read Luke chapter 2. The Bible tells us to read publicly the Word of God. And so that's what we're going to do this morning in a few minutes. Now Luke tells us basically everything that we know about the early life of Jesus. And there's a whole lot we don't know. You know, having three kids... I can't really conceive of what a sinless two-year-old would look like. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would be. Can you? Lots of parents who don't believe in the, doc the doctrine of man's depravity and original sin, I'm pretty sure they become convinced when their child is about the age of two. Now, I wonder things like how Jesus' limited human brain increasingly understood both who he was and what he was to do. And what were his prayers like as a child? I mean, I would love to have heard those or to have those recorded. Did he ever exercise his power while growing up? I mean, if my daughter wants a pony, she tells her dad she wants a pony. She maybe even prays for a pony. Jesus might be like, pony, right? <laughs> uh, I don't think he did that. But uh, what if, you know, his, his little brother had a fever? Is Jesus going to let that go? Is he going to pray for him? Is he going to go heal him? You know, I don't know what that looked like. What did, speaking of his brothers and sisters, what did his relationships with his siblings look like? I mean, you, you know, when they come to you and they're fighting, Mary and Joseph knew whose fault it was, right? I tried to be really diplomatic in my home and pretend I didn't know whose fault it was, and I wouldn't just take the word of one of my kids over the other. Uh, but Mary and Joseph didn't have that problem. You know, I also wonder, when did Joseph die? I mean, he's there during, uh, during the, obviously, the birth and the growing up and the 12-year-old temple scene that we'll see. And he taught Jesus enough to become a carpenter, but then Jesus' public ministry starts and, and no trace of Joseph, right? So where did he go and when did he, when did he die? I have lots of questions, but what little uh, we do know about the early years we get from Luke, and we'll have to be content in what the Lord chose to reveal to us. So let's read starting in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Luke. Now, the reason we're, we're going to read this whole thing, and so just be patient with me, and let's read together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, 
to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he called, they called, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this was a righteous and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. 
And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Has anyone in here besides me ever left their child at church on a Sunday? I have done that. I have gotten harassed about that every, every year since that has occurred. Uh, so I am in good company, though, because Mary and Joseph did the same thing. They left Jesus there. I told, uh, I think it was Stephanie that we left, and I told her, we didn't leave you. We just took a very long and circuitous route to pick you up. But anyway, she thought she got left. Now, you all have probably heard lots of sermons on Luke chapter 2, and most of them have probably been Christmas sermons. There are a lot of things we could discuss, and you've, you've probably heard a lot of things discussed in this chapter. But of all the things we can focus on, I want us to center on that last verse, which says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, we're going to talk today about what our kids or our grandkids, or our great-grandkids, need in order to grow in wisdom and in favor with God and man. Um, You may say that's a weird thing to talk about when most of us don't have kids at home. Well, you guys are the ones who are the influencers on their parents. So I really want us to see from this passage what things children need and don't need because parents, including Christian parents, sometimes get their priorities askew as to what exactly the children need. Let's start with some things that they don't need. They do not need wealth. Now remember, we're talking about what kids need, okay? There is nothing wrong with wealth, but we should understand that there are far more important things than wealth. Jesus was born in the humblest of circumstances. Luke 2, 7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now you and I could not pick where, when, or to whom we were born, but the second person of the Trinity did get to pick where he was born. Now why did he choose to be born in these circumstances? I think it was so that we would learn a lesson. The world tells us that our kids need the best toys and the best education and the best everything that we can possibly give them. And there is nothing wrong with sacrificing for your kids. We, we do it regularly. But there's a lot of temptation to do too much of a good thing. And there's going to be that temptation with your kids and with your grandkids as they raise their children. 
And we need to be that voice of, of, of reason and that voice of taking these things in moderation so that we don't do good things and get them out of balance by putting too much attention on those good things. For instance, we can spend way too much time earning money, even for their benefit, than being with the children. Jesus was born to poor parents. Now, how do we know they were poor? One way we know is by the sacrifice they brought to the temple. Luke 2, through 24 says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now let's look at exactly where the law specifies this uh, offering. Back in Leviticus 12, 6 through 8, we read, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now they were supposed to bring a lamb unless they could not afford one. Do you think Mary and Joseph were just being cheap? I really don't think so. I think the only way they took option B was that they were truly poor. Mary and Joseph would have given the best that they were able to give. Now, your kids or, or grandkids or great-grandkids do not need wealth. And while wealth is not evil, the parent's pursuit of wealth can crowd out the necessary things that the child needs to grow in wisdom and in favor with God. Believers often get off track because we, we take a good thing, or at least something that is not bad in itself, and then we elevate it to a necessary thing. And so we just change the priority. We make the priority wrong. And in doing that, we can take a good thing or, or a neutral thing and turn it into a bad thing. The more subtle danger for believers is to do that. I mean, we know it'd be wrong to pursue our, our neighbor's wife or to pursue wealth by stealing. We know that's wrong. We go, okay, I don't have to think about that. I don't have to compromise with that. I can just stay away from that. But the subtle danger is when we take something that pursuing it is okay, but then we neglect other more necessary things in that pursuit. So they don't need wealth. Another thing they don't need, they do not need parents who are influential and well-connected in worldly things. Now, politics is a part of everything. Uh, your child's school may be political. The teachers and administrators may treat kids very differently depending on who their parents are. Uh, I have I've seen that firsthand. It shouldn't be that way, but sometimes it is. Parents have to prioritize, and here's the key word, that we have to prioritize how to spend their time and money, partly based on whether they want to have the kind of influence that can help their kids. There's nothing wrong with having influence and being connected. As a matter of fact, it's a very good thing, and it probably helps your Christian witness. 
But if we do those things in neglect of the more important things with our kids, then we can fall off in a ditch there. And guys, I want you to get this perspective again so that when, when you're able to, you can tell your kids or grandkids because they will say, hey, I want to do what's best for my child. I want my child's welfare to be above everything else. And, and I understand that impulse. But then sometimes we put our effort into the wrong thing and the kid grows up with a great education, with a great car while they're in high school. Then they go off to college and they never darken the door of a church again. That is, talk about pandemic, that is pandemic in the Southern Baptists and in, in American Christianity. Is we rear kids, we pamper the kids, we educate the kids, and then time college comes, we don't see the kids anymore, okay? Jesus chose to be born to parents who had no influence with anyone except with God. He was born to powerless parents in a powerless and oppressed nation. Israel was under Roman dominion. Now the Messiah could have been born during a time like when Solomon was king and and they were the most influential country around. That wasn't the plan though and God does everything precisely when and how he should. So I want you to notice with me that the announcement of the birth of the creator of this world was given to some lowly, down-and-out kind of people rather than the rich and famous. Now, shepherds were the first ones to hear this news. Shepherds were not highly thought of. And you may think, well, that's weird because, I mean, David was a shepherd and everybody in Israel loved David. Nevertheless, at this time, shepherds were considered untrustworthy and their testimonies were not even admissible in a court of law because their character was looked down upon. So these shepherds were not the rich and famous. They were not the influential. And yet, these are the ones that God chose to make his announcement to. God sent his angel to these guys with the news of the Messiah's birth. Again, the reason, I think, is I believe he wants us to see that we regular people can be used to do amazing things if we submit to God, depend on his power, and don't trust in our own riches or our own influence. When Jesus grew up, he chose, his, you know, he chose 12 guys who were unremarkable. He chose fishermen and tax collectors and, and political rebels. He then empowered those unremarkable men to do remarkable things. That way he receives all the glory. Now, if you are brilliant and talented, don't despair. God can use you too. He used Paul, who was brilliant and talented. But mostly, he uses ordinary people who are submitted to him, and then he takes them and does extraordinary things with them. Now, let's talk about what children do need, okay? They don't need wealth as badly as we, we Americans tend to think that's what they need. That's not what they need. They don't need parents who are connected in, in the world and have influence in the world. What they do need desperately is godly parents. Mary and Joseph obeyed the Lord. Uh, one way they obeyed is in naming Jesus. I mean, remember, we talked about last week that the one who has the right to name the person is the one who has authority over that person. And God didn't say, hey, you're going to have a son and call him what you want. He's yours. You have dominion over him. He said by his angel, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him Jesus. And so they obeyed the Lord. They submitted to the Lord. 
and they named him Jesus. They were also obedient in observing God's law. Um, Circumcision was to be done on the eighth day. And here in verse 21, we read, At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So they were doing everything they were supposed to do. They gave him the right name. They circumcised him on the eighth day. We read already about the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph offered in the temple for the firstborn. So they were, they were careful to do what the law required. They were fastidious in every detail. Luke 2.39 says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, they, they did everything they were supposed to do according to the law, but then they continued to live in an obedient and subservient manner. We read that in Luke 2.41, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. They didn't skip church. They took their kids. Now, your kids, grandkids or great-grandkids, desperately need godly parents. If you're a parent, work hard at being a godly parent. If you're a grandparent or great-grandparent, pray for that child, pray for their parents, and use whatever influence you have to help them have godly parents. So they need godly parents, but they also need purpose. Folks need purpose. People that don't have purpose, get up, go to work, hope that they'll have a great weekend so they work during the week so they can get to the weekend and then when the weekend comes they do what they can to have a good time but then they hit the grind again on Monday and there's they're just like a hamster running on a wheel they're not getting anywhere they're not feeling a sense of accomplishment and we need to give our kids purpose now does that have to do with marriage or money or material things. I hope not. <laughs> Folks, if we teach our kids, I, I have gone to great lengths to teach my kids, you don't need a spouse. I have a spouse. I love my spouse. I thank God for my spouse. But some people are called to a life of singleness. So I never tried to indoctrinate my children with the need that they would only be fulfilled if they had a spouse. Uh, does it have to do with money? Now look, my parents didn't tell me this, but somehow I understood from, from my upbringing that what I needed to do was I needed to go to school, I needed to work hard in school, I needed to make really good grades so that I could graduate and pursue a field that made a lot of money. I knew that money was important, and that was my, my goal kind of when I was growing up. Now I have told my children you need to work hard in school because you need to be the most useful tool that you can be in the hands of God. Now, what is he going to call you to do? I don't know. Catherine has had a passion to become a doctor since she read uh, a book called Kisses from Katie, where this missionary goes to Africa. And anyway, she, she's had this dream for years and years and years. So I didn't have to push her. I didn't push her into a field that makes a lot of money. If they want to do anything that is honoring to the Lord, any vocation that is, is not illegal and honors the Lord, I am glad for them to do it. And so we need to push them not toward money or material things. Guys, we, we need to tell them the, the dignity of work for sure. We need to say, you need to provide for yourself. You need to provide for your family. You need to be able to do that. 
But we have got to teach them counter to the culture that says the guy who dies with the most toys wins. We cannot let our children or our grandchildren or great-grandchildren believe that that is the point of growing up and growing old and working hard, not material things. So let me ask, how are you defining success for them? Or how are their parents defining success for them? Obviously, we need to tell them that working is a good thing. It's from the Lord. It's honorable. But we need to teach them that regardless of their vocation, the most important calling on their lives is to know God and to make Him known. Whatever their vocation is, their real job, their most important calling in life is to know God and to make Him known. That is what we have to teach those who are younger and who are still able to be influenced. Those in the church can and should pour into our kids. Um, Kat has asked the kids to read the Bible every day. Uh, I have asked you guys to read the Bible every day. Kat is having wildly more success, I think, than I am. (laughs) Uh, I believe the key is starbursts. So, if you are here today and you say, I don't read the Bible every day, if I can talk you into it by bribing you with Starbursts, I will gladly invest in Starbursts, okay? You come see Jimmy and tell him you want your Starburst next week and we'll have you some. So those in the church have to pour in to the youngsters. Now in our passage, we see Simeon, Anna, and the teachers in the temple all contributing to Jesus understanding and purpose. Now, Simeon and Anna were there when he was too young, but whatever they said, what we read that they said to his parents, you know that Jesus found out about that later. And they were saying, look, this is the consolation of Israel. Simeon was saying, I can die happy now because I've seen the Messiah. And Anna was there praying and fasting and talking to people who were looking for the salvation of the Lord. So these things were being poured into his life and his parents so that he would have a great sense of purpose. And then when he was 12 and he was in the temple, the teachers weren't ignoring him. The teachers weren't saying, hey, you're a stupid kid. They were sharing with him. They were talking with him. Uh, He was asking them questions and they were pouring into him. The purpose we need to show them is to know God and to make him known. Now, the first part of that is knowing God. And guys, we need to be able to tell our kids, grandkids, whatever, how to know God. And I know from talking to you that some of you are still a little bit intimidated to share the gospel. Um, But today, uh, let me just tell you how simple it is. We need to know that we are sinners. When I was a little kid, uh, I think I was in the fifth grade, I think. I didn't understand much about theology, I promise you. But you know what I did understand? I understood that I was a sinner. I understood that God is holy. And I understood that I needed forgiveness. And I believe I was saved knowing that I was a sinner in need of forgiveness. A pastor came and talked to me and he sat down in our our living room there. 
And he explained to me that I was a sinner. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I get it. I knew that. I lived with myself. I, <laughs> I knew. Uh, he told me that there was a way of salvation, that Jesus had come and died in my place. I didn't know why he did that really, um, but I was grateful. And I said, well, that's awesome. And he said, if you want to, you can repent of your sins. And he said, what that means is um, you, you, you don't do the bad things. You don't lie to your mama. You don't steal the cookies out of the cookie jar. You, you try to live in such a way that it honors God. And you stop doing things that dishonor him. And you let him be the boss. And I said, okay, I can do that. And he said, if you really want to do that, let's pray. And I prayed with him. And I believe even at that young age with that little limited understanding, I was saved. So we can tell our kids that. We can tell our grandkids that. So uh, another thing that I've been harping on lately is prayer. If you uh, don't have a lot of direct influence with your grandkids or great-grandkids, pray for them and pray for their parents. And I know some of you that do, and you do relentlessly. And that is a blessing to me to know that you're praying for them. Continue to pray for them. Uh, God can have influence in things that you can't. If you can't get to your kids and grandkids to share the gospel with them, the Lord can make it happen. So pray for those folks. All right, we are going to pray. And then Jimmy's going to come and sing. And if you would like to join this church, which I know a a couple of you have been visiting for a while and may want to, come up and and talk to Jimmy. Uh, If you want someone to pray with you, come and Jimmy will pray with you. I would love to, but I won't do it this Sunday. And if you need to understand the gospel better, come and ask Brother Jimmy about that too, and he'll share the gospel with you. Let me pray.